This sermon was recorded at the Midtown Congregation of Redeemer Fellowship, a church that exists to cultivate communities of transformed disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of the city. For more information, visit RedeemerKansasCity.org. Good morning, everyone. Today's reading is from 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. That can be found on page 1019 in the, uh, in the Bibles in front of you. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. If you are able, please stand for the reading of God's word. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, All things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly." Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you in the name of Jesus for the truth of your word, for the power of your word, for the reality of your kindness that is on display, that you have spoken, that you have given us revelation of yourself, of your desires, of your plans, of your purposes. God, I ask that this morning as we look at the coming day of Jesus Christ, when he will come and make all things new, when he will bring justice and righteousness to bear in this earth for all eternity, God, I ask that you would give us a spirit of revelation this morning. Upon the hearing and the speaking of your word, would you give grace? Would you come, Holy Spirit, and move among our hearts, breathe upon us, awaken us, God, invigorate us? Would you do what this teaching is designed to do all throughout the scripture, which is cause us to live with a sobriety and an alertness in the midst of this world, watching and waiting and hastening the day of your coming? God, would you bring us forth in alertness, watchfulness? God, would you cause your word to be alive in us this morning and us to be alive to your word? Glorify your son in our midst, we ask, in his great and glorious name, amen. Amen. So for the next two weeks, we'll be walking through uh, this last chapter in the epistle of 2 Peter. And where we find ourselves, uh, if you haven't been with us, is walking through this letter that the apostle Peter wrote 
to the churches who had been struggling with this emergence of false teaching in their midst. So what we've looked at for the last several weeks in our time in Second Peter is these doctrines have begun to emerge within the church, these false teachers who are seeking to take away the faithful of, of those in the church from the one true foundation, which is Christ Jesus. And Peter is seeking to strengthen the church in the knowledge of who Jesus is, in the knowledge of their faith, in the pursuit of holiness, and he wants them to not be uh, tossed to and fro by these uh, doctrines that are finding their way into the church. And the way that he's going to close it all is by putting us face to face with the second coming of Jesus. And he is going to show us that this sure and steadfast hope that all the believers of the New Testament held of the day when Jesus would come again and restore the earth to its proper place in relationship with God, where he would bring justice upon the unrighteous, where he would bring peace and restoration and joy forever. We're going to look at these realities and situate them as the true hope of every believer. So the next two weeks are going to be part one and part two. And this week, what we're going to do is look through actually the first 10 verses of 2 Peter 3, where Peter begins to show that these false teachers had begun to inhabit a way of thinking that declared that Jesus wasn't actually going to come back and bring judgment. And he wants the, the true church to understand not only is this false, but it undermines the very um, driving ethic of how people are to pursue lives of obedience and holiness before the Lord. Uh, and then next week, we're going to look at the implications of the doctrine of the second coming uh, for the church. So we're just going to jump right in here. Look with me at letter A. So the reality and the certainty of the second coming of Jesus was one of the most important parts of the belief system of the early church. Now, I don't know what your familiarity is with the reality of the second coming. I don't know if, if you spend much time thinking about it. I don't know if your, um, your familiarity with it is like a pop culture one where you like saw or read the Left Behind books at some point or the movies that continue to be made um, about them. I, I don't know what your familiarity with the reality of the doctrine of the second coming is, but you cannot read a page of the New Testament that is not inspired by, um, buttressed by, held up by the reality that Jesus is coming back. He is coming back to finish the work that he started um, with his life, death, and resurrection. He's coming back to judge the wicked and to deliver the righteous and establish his kingdom over the earth for all eternity. That is a certain reality that inspires the faith and even gives shape to the obedience and the life of the church as we read the New Testament. Right? It's one of the most important belief, or parts of the belief system of the early church. Throughout the New Testament, the second coming is to be seen as the blessed hope for every single believer. Look with me at Titus uh, chapter 2, verse 13. Titus says, 
all these things are happening because we as the church are meant to be waiting for our blessed hope. We are to be waiting for the, the foundation and the security and the anchor of the hope that we have in God that he will make all things new. And what is that blessed hope? He defines it. It's the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So he says the second coming is to serve for you as this anchor in the future of God's certain uh, fulfillment of all of his promises. That the, the church is to look for and watch for and be encouraged by and strengthened by the reality that Jesus is coming again. Letter B, yet most believers, I find, are completely unaware of or unfamiliar with the truths related to the second coming. Often, I think we believe the lie that studying these events surrounding the return of Jesus or the realities of the return of Jesus are difficult and unclear or, or even worse, unknowable. Thus, it leads us to a type of ambivalence related to these truths. Or even worse yet, there are subtle ways, and we'll talk about this in a little bit, where I think that we have begun to embody or ingest the scoffing spirit that's seen here, maybe not with our words, right? Like, I don't think any of us, if I asked you, is Jesus going to come back? I don't think anybody would go, no, that's not going to happen, right? But we would all give credence to it or lip, lip service to it. We wouldn't say, oh, his coming isn't real or there is no promise of his coming like these teachers had. But in a functional way, it doesn't do anything in our lives, right? It doesn't provoke how we are to live today. Many of us live completely ambivalent or unaware of this as a reality. And I think that's because we have at some level ingested or embodied even this reality of the scoffing spirit that we'll talk about in a minute. Letter C, however, the expectation of Christ's return and even the, the reality of what was going to surround the return of Jesus were a foundational part of early Christian belief. So we heard this read this morning, 2 Peter 3, verse 2, right? Peter's telling them, I want you to remember things that you already know. He's not giving them new information, right? I want you to remember the predictions of the holy prophets, right? So you should be familiar with these things. These things saturate the Old Testament prophetic literature and you should know them already, is what he's saying. And I want to remind you not just of the predictions of the holy prophets in the Old Testament. I want you to remember the commandment of Jesus that was given to you. And we'll talk about what that is here in a minute. Through the apostles, right? So Peter is assuming something here. He assumes that you and I already know what he's talking about. Right, that we have a familiarity with it. If he's saying, I want you to be stirred up in your remembrance of this, he's saying you already know this stuff. And I just want to remind you of it. Look at 2 Thessalonians chapter two. Now I find this one to be amazing because Paul is writing to the Thessalonians, uh, the, 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 
I can't say it. Whew. Thessalonians in Thessalonica. I was trying to say both of them at the same time. He was writing these believers. If you look at the book of Acts, he spent three weeks with them. Okay, I want you to, I want you to get this. He spent three weeks with the Thessalonians. Now, he wants to say this. He's talking about the emergence of what he calls the man of lawlessness or sin and what's going to pre, be a precursor to the coming of the Lord. He says, do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? Now, how's that for like an alpha class? Right, anybody know what the alpha class is? It's like intro to beliefs of the, of the church right? It's like a new believers class. Where do you begin? Paul goes, hey, you want to know my alpha class? Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming back. And here's what we need to watch for. Here's what we need to be aware of. Here's how we need to live in light of that. I don't want you to miss this. This really matters. If I only got three weeks with you, this is what I'm going to talk about. And then he reminds them as he's writing back to them several years later, hey, when I was with you, I talked about this stuff with you all the time. Don't forget. Remember, remember, remember. Right, Jesus, in Matthew chapter 24, he tells this story, a parable of a fig tree. Right? He says, I want, you to, I want you to recognize something. When you look at a fig tree, right, you understand when it begins to become tender and put out leaves, you know that the summer is near. Likewise, when you see the things that I'm telling you about, which means you have to be aware of them, You have to understand what they mean. You have to understand their importance and significance. Know that I'm at the very gates. So letter D, the certainty of Christ's imminent return stands behind the faith, obedience, and encouragement of every single book of the New Testament. You cannot read a book of the New Testament that doesn't have this upholding it as one of the primary ways it is calling you to respond to Christ in faith and in loving trust. Because of that, it's important for us to familiarize ourselves with these glorious truths. And it's precisely this truth that the teachers of Peter's day, the false teachers, were seeking to undermine. Right? So we come to 2 Peter 3, The apostle is going to look specifically at the false teacher's disregard for the second coming. He outlines the faultiness of their beliefs, the right understanding of the delay of Christ's return, and then he exhorts the believers to pursue again holiness in light of the imminent and certain return of Jesus. So letter G, I've got an outline there for you of 2 Peter 3 that you can take and look at. Look at at Roman numeral 2. So Peter, again, begins this chapter with reminding his hearers of the purpose for which he is writing. Peter tells them once again, reminding them that he is writing in order that they would remember these truths. Look with me at 2 Peter 3.1. This is now the second letter that I'm writing you, right? He wrote them the first letter, 1 Peter one point previously, and he goes, now I'm actually writing you a second letter. For what purpose? 
In both of them, I want to do something. I want to stir up your mind to remember things. And stirring up their mind to remember things is not just an intellectual endeavor, right? He's not just wanting them to go like, oh yeah, remember this because you're about to have a test and when you sit down, you need to make sure that you have the right answer. That's not what stirring up to remembrance means in the Bible. Anytime you see remembrance in the Bible, it is calling something to your attention so that you order your life in accordance with it. It's meant to provoke and produce a response from you, right? So Peter's saying, I want to tell you these truths so that they stir you up in your mind and in your affections to pursue yet again the faith that you've been given and obedience to the Lord in a spirit of holiness. Letter B, the remainder of these, or the reminder of these truths is not specifically or simply to reinforce information to them, given to produce a specific response, right? He wants to stir up their sincere mind to lay hold of the truth in faith and pursue a lifestyle of humble obedience to the ways of Jesus in the face of demonic deception of the false teachers. Look at the top of page two. So Peter reminds them again, Hey, this is why I'm writing you. I'm writing you to remember something. As these false teachers come in and seek to move you away from the true foundation of Christ, their their teaching is designed to toss you to and fro, to get you on your heels, so to speak, backpedaling in a spirit of anxiety and fear. He goes, I want you to remember some things. And he's going to remind them of some truths here. Look at, the Roman, at Roman numeral three. Peter wants his readers to know that there will be scoffers who come in the last days that mock the reality of the coming of the Lord. So look at verse three here. Knowing this, first of all, that the scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. So what Peter's doing here, if you don't pick up on it really quickly, is remarkable in his logic and in his argument. Peter wants the church to be reminded that the irony of the false teacher's presence and teaching actually proves predictions that the prophets and the apostles gave. He wants you to go, hey, don't get afraid that there are false teachers with you. They're going to come and they're going to go, hey, where, where actually is God? Did God really say he was going to come back? Is God really going to ever judge the unrighteous? Did God really say these things? Where is he then? And Peter goes, hey, when that spirit is present, even among you, stand firm. Because their presence confirms the word of God. It doesn't undermine it. He wants you to see that. He wants you to understand that the presence of false teachers in the midst is precisely a marker of the last days. 
right? It's important to understand the New Testament understanding of the last days, right? They're, they began at Pentecost and they'll happen all the way until Jesus returns, right? That's just a theological thing that you have to have in your, in your mind, right? Like at Pentecost, Jesus inaugurated the last days and they go on until he comes back. And Peter's going, hey, what you need to know is when false teachers emerge in your midst, they are not undermining what God promised would happen. They're actually fulfilling it. Look at letter D. Here's, here's some places that we can see. Jesus declares that the presence of false prophets actually marks the last days. Look at Matthew 24, verses 4 and 11. Jesus says, see to it that no one leads you astray. Now, here's a side note. When Peter says, remember the commandment of the Lord Jesus, I think it's really interesting. Why does he not say, remember the teaching of the Lord Jesus? Right? Why does he not say, Jesus taught you that there will be false prophets in your midst? The reason that I think Peter says commandment is because the reality of false prophets, Jesus is teaching was to promote a response. So he commanded them something. What did he command them? Right here in verse four. See to it that no one leads you astray. That's a commandment. That's not a suggestion. That's not just him offering up some advice. He is commanding and exhorting his people. Live in communion with me in understanding of what's going to happen and how this world is going to uh, go between the time I ascend and the time I come back. See to it that when this emerges, you do not get led astray. That's the commandment, right? And he tells them many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. Paul also warns, letter E, that the churches will face false teachers and false prophets, marking the life of the church in the last days. You can go lots of places in Paul, but in 2 Timothy 3, he says, understand this. In the last days, there will come times of difficulty. And then he outlines what the times are going to look like. And then he, at the end, compares the presence of false teaching to these two people from Old Testament uh, story. Just as Jonas and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men, false teachers that came in and among the church, opposed the truth. Men corrupted in mind, disqualified regarding the faith. So what this means for Peter is that the disciples of Jesus don't need to be worried about the reality of false teachers in their midst. Right? It doesn't have to make you afraid. It doesn't have to cause you anxiety. It doesn't have to get you on your heels, reeling, backpedaling, trying to make apologies for God's truth or uh, um, trying to get around it. He's trying to put strength into the church to stand firm, going, this is to be expected. What did you expect? Could be what Peter's saying. What did you expect? Jesus said it, check. Paul said it, check. This is what we, were, we knew was going to happen. Even though they promote these false teachers, a scoffing spirit that Jesus will not in fact return, 
They are unaware that their very presence fulfills the promises of God given through his prophets and apostles. So what Peter here is seeking to show the church is there will always be those who seek to make light of the things that are in fact weighty and important and urgent in scripture. If the scripture teaches that the certain imminence of the coming of the Lord is to fuel sobriety and an alert spirit among Christ's disciples, a scoffing spirit attempts to mock the coming of the Lord, seeking to minimize and undermine the truth of his coming. This is what it's designed to do. So letter H, Peter outlines then two realities related to the scoffers that are important for us to understand, right? So he says, these scoffers are gonna be in your midst. And this actually upholds the promises and the predictions and the commandments that have been given to us. But I want you to know two things about them. There's two realities that we need to understand about these scoffers. Number one, their scoffing is rooted in immorality. Look at verse three here. Knowing this, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. Now, this is really important for us. Peter declares that these teachers are scoffing against the predictions of the prophets and the apostles because they long to follow their own sinful desires. It's really important for us to catch something here. False teaching is a moral problem, not an intellectual problem. I I want you to hold fast to that. No matter how fancy something sounds, how intelligent something sounds, how good of a reason somebody has for, you know, deconstructing or moving away from the faith or putting things on question, it can be presented with all sorts of intellectual concepts. It is not an intellectual problem. It's not an intellectual problem. Peter here says, these people scoff at the coming of the Lord, not because it's irrational, but because they want to follow their sinful desires. They want to indulge in their own sinful desires, and so they come up with intelligent-sounding ideas to justify their perversion. Although it might be presented intellectually, refined, intelligent, all of that, It's ultimately rooted in an attempt to promote and bolster their sinful desires. Famous Anglican uh, archbishop in the English Reformation, Thomas Cramner, he was famous for saying this sentence. Humans are designed this way. What the heart loves, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. False teaching is not an intellectual problem. It's a moral problem, right? The Bible tells us that no one walks away from the Lord because it was just too logical, right? What does the Bible tell us? They did not love the truth. They exchanged the truth of God for what? A lie, right? They have abandoned what is 
right and good and clearly seen so that they can pursue what's in their hearts, right? So Peter wants the church to understand these scoffers may sound really fancy. They might have a really good designed, logical uh, way of understanding what, uh, why God has not chosen to come back yet or Jesus isn't coming. Don't let that shake you. It's that they want to follow their sinful desires. Look at the top of page three. So the first thing that we have to see about the scoffers is that it's a moral issue not an intellectual one. The second is Peter wants us to see that the scoffing actually makes them enemies of God. Now, again, we might not catch this immediately, but by phrasing their statement the way that he does, Peter is putting these false teachers squarely in a long-standing biblical category, right? Although we might not pick up on it, the way that Peter frames the content of their scoffing, look at verse four. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? Right? It it intends to draw on a rich biblical history of voices that mock God's purposes. The introductory words, where is, are often on the lips of scoffers, the foolish, the wicked, the enemies of God, all throughout the Old Testament. What Peter is attempting to show us is that these false teachers, actually by the way that they're talking, they find themselves in this category on the outside of God's purposes. They're on the wrong side of biblical tradition, Peter wants us to say. Look at Psalm 42 here. As the deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me. While they say to me all day long, where is your God? Where is the promise of his coming? Look at Joel 2. Spare your people, O Lord. Make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should the nations mock you and take up a mocking spirit and say what? Where is their God? So Joel is praying to the Lord and saying, act on behalf of your name so that when you show up and do what you promised, the nations won't take up this scoffing spirit and go, where is their God? Where is he? Jeremiah, the false prophets would look at Jeremiah and say to him all the time, where is the word of the Lord? Let it come. So what Peter's doing here is he's saying, Hey, these scoffers, they are in a long-standing history of people who are not promoting or teaching the truth of God. They're actually enemies and adversaries of God himself. So in our contemporary moment, I actually think we can talk about the scoffing spirit evidencing itself in two ways. So this is just a little aside for us because we might go, you know, nobody's standing up, like I said earlier, and saying the second coming isn't real in our midst. But I do think there are ways that this expresses itself in our contemporary moment. Number one, there is 
I would say more outside of the church, a disbelief about the second coming. Many in our contemporary moment abandon belief in anything related to God or his future intervention in the world. The waters we swim in have become atheistic, whether explicitly or functionally. And most around us would embody this kind of mocking spirit of those who doubt the presence of God's judgment. Right? So this is the waters that we swim in day in and day out. Most people you interact with, they're going to have this whether they ever say, where is the promise of his coming? Right? They're more going like, uh, he doesn't even exist. And would a good God ever come to judge the world? That's what you're going to experience outside. But the second way I think actually has a temptation for us. I think there is a fear that Christians have of being weirdos. You get a little bit of a chuckle. I think we have this fear of being perceived as radical or paranoid or chicken little, right? That we're going to be, we're going to be the people that are constantly standing up and going, the sky's falling, the sky's falling. It's so bad. Everything's going to hell in a handbasket. And oh my goodness, this is, and we're so afraid of that, that we will not press in to lay hold of what the Bible instructs us, and I believe that Jesus commands us to hold as a posture related to his coming, right? In the church, there's a lot of fear related to the topic of Christ's return. Many believe things like this. Hasn't every generation believed they were living in the end? Have you ever thought or heard that, right? Hasn't every generation all these Christians from history, haven't they all believed that they were living in the end? What about, doesn't every generation think theirs is worse than any before? Right, like we just think it gets worse and worse, but doesn't every generation think that theirs is the worst one? It's like, man, you know, the parents that lived in the 60s, they thought this was, this was surely it, right? The hippie revolution and all this kind of stuff, cultural revolutions, surely Jesus is coming back. There actually was kind of like a flood of intense refocusing on the end times in that season, precisely because everybody's going, oh my gosh, what is happening? But we can let that into us and it can keep us from pressing into what the scriptures actually desire to provoke in us. These are subtly, in my opinion, they're subtly cynical questions that keep us from engaging the reality of the scripture. And in small ways, they allow us or they, they tempt us to embody this scoffing spirit about the second coming, right? We, we, we're so afraid of becoming whatever it is in your mind that you would put in that category of weirdo, right? Like the, the people with the charts, right? Like you've got some chart in your Bible that outlines the, all the events, of the second coming, right? Like you unfold it. Nobody even knows these people. Maybe this is crazy. <laughs> wow. Maybe we're in a good spot. Maybe we just need to get after it then. Uh, but we don't want to be one of those, right? And, and there is a subtle, I've, I've kind of alluded to this over the past couple weeks. 
There is this subtle thing that happens in our contemporary moment in the church. You get it with like this um, real negative moniker of like fundamentalist or something. We're so afraid with being categorized with some extremes that we perceive that we actually don't dig out the gold and the good from those realities. And we, we look at saints that went before with a spirit of like judgment and a spirit of trying to run away from that. And what we end up doing is forsaking the good that was a part of it. And I think we do this with some of the stuff related to end times, right? I don't want to be one of those guys that's like, Jesus is coming back July 8th, 2036, right? And I've got all the dates and charts to prove it. But what we end up doing is we don't even look at it at all. And we don't live with what we're going to find next week when we get into the exhortation. We do not live with a watchful, sober, alive, alert spirit in this world, right? Jesus says when he's talking about his coming, he goes, the thing that really matters is that you live awake, not dissipated, not drunken, not given over to the cares of this life, not indulging in the things of this world, not living for this age and forgetting that there is an age to come that is breaking in and crashing into this world and one day I'm going to stand at the door and there's going to be fire of judgment that is going to expose everything that's real. And my evaluation will all be all that matters in that day, Jesus would say. And we go, yeah, I don't want to be a weirdo. Thanks, but no thanks. I don't want us to have that. I don't want us to ingest that, imbibe in that, embody that. I want us to look at the teachings of the scripture and go, we don't want the scoffing spirit. Not in our midst. Not in our midst. We want to be a people alive and alert and awake, watching and waiting for the coming of the Lord. So what Peter does is he begins to answer the objections of Christ's certain coming. This is in verses 5 to 10. He provides two answers to these, this objection, right? They go, where is the promise of his coming? Everything just goes on the way that it always has, right? Hasn't every generation believed that theirs was the worst? Hasn't every generation believed that Jesus would come back in their lifetime? And Peter goes, I want to answer that. I want to give two things to watch for. And the important word that I want you to see in verse 5 and verse 8, circle it, highlight it, underline it, he uses the same word twice, overlook. He wants us, he says, the scoffers willfully overlook something, meaning they close their eyes to it. This is really evident and very clear, and they shut their eyes. Why do they shut their eyes? Hint, it was back, we talked about it a minute ago, because they want to keep sinning. They close their eyes to it. If I can pretend it doesn't exist, it can't hurt me. 
right? It's the kid who believes that you can't see them when you're playing hide and seek when they close their own eyes. Because they can't see you, they believe you can't see them. It's delusional. And what Peter wants you to see is the false teachers are doing the same thing. If I shut my eyes to this and pretend like it doesn't exist, it can't hurt me. And he goes, they're deliberately overlooking something. And then in verse eight, he wants to tell the church, don't overlook this, right? People of God do not misunderstand why he would delay his coming. So the first answer is just simply a historical fact, right? They go, things have just gone on the way they always have. God's not going to come. He's not going to do this. And Peter goes, that can't be true. Number one, God created everything, right? So he took the whatever uh, chaos of the world in Genesis 1, 2, the formless and void, and he brought it to order. And by their own statement, they said, since the creation of the world, nothing's changed. He goes, well, they're missing out on something. God created the world. He created the world. You want to say he's not involved in it? You want to say he doesn't get to be in charge over it? They are missing this fact, willfully closing their eyes to the reality that it was created by a creator. And he gets to be in charge. He gets to do what he wants. And they deliberately overlook the fact that the flood happened, right? He goes on to talk about the flood and the destruction that comes from water. And he says, this leads us to the certain reality that there will be another day when God brings judgment and destruction upon the earth by fire, verse seven. So he wants us to see that. But look at page four, letter D where Peter wants us to invest our energy as the church is a reminder to not misunderstand the character of God. What he wants you to not overlook is, he says, the the false teachers deliberately overlook history. Beloved, don't overlook the nature of God. He turns to remind them of a theological reality. Although the false teachers scoff that the coming judgment of the Lord is delayed and since things keep going on as they always have, Christians ought to know that there is a different interpretation of the delay of God. Peter begins by alluding to a passage from Psalm 90 that they would have been well familiar with, showing that they should know that one day is like a thousand years to the Lord. This demonstrates that God's outworking of his purposes is not bound to time in the same way we evaluate and understand it, right? So when Jesus stands up and he says, behold, I'm coming soon, Jesus' understanding of soon may be different than ours, may be different than ours, right? We would have imagined because one day is one day to us, but he goes a thousand years in Psalm 90 is like a watch in the night when it passes. It's nothing to me. A thousand years goes on and it was like a blip, a blip on the chart of human history to me. He goes, don't get caught up in evaluating time the way that we are led to in our finite and limited minds. This ought to leave believers 
to rejecting a scoffing spirit for a correct understanding of God's purposes, leading us to understand that God is not slow to fulfill his purposes and his promises like we might deem him to be in our natural thinking. Look at Habakkuk 2 here. I love this promise. He says there's a vision of God's intervention that he's talking about. It awaits an appointed time, meaning there's a date on the calendar when God will accomplish this. It hastens to get there. It will not lie, meaning God is saying, I'm not going to tell you I'm going to do it and then miss it by one moment. I am bringing it to pass exactly like I want. Then he tells Habakkuk, if it seems slow, keep waiting. It will surely come. It will not delay. And what that means is in God's purpose. It won't delay in accordance with his purpose. So then Peter turns and he gives us the reason Why then, God, why would you be so slow to accomplish your purposes? Don't believe it's because he's not going to bring judgment. He will bring judgment. He will judge every unrighteousness and lawlessness and sinfulness and wickedness of the human heart. Every single one of them, not one of them will go undealt with let alone don't believe that it's that he doesn't care. Peter wants you to know, why does creation seem to just go on as it has, that it's actually proof of God's character, namely that he is patient towards those who are wicked, not desiring that they be judged, but rather that they would come and receive salvation, that they would turn in a posture of repentance and be saved. I want you to just hear these four verses, and then we'll end here. Peter wants us to rightly interpret the delay of God, right? Where is the promise of his coming? Should not cause you to doubt. What it should do is even put on display, oh yeah, This is what God is like. This is what he's like. This fills me with faith that he is. Look at Exodus 34. The Lord, the Lord, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So when you experience the delay, where is the promise of his coming? Doesn't everything just keep happening the way it always has? Isn't every generation think that they're the one in which Jesus is going to come back? Rather than living in an ambivalent, uh, passive way related to that, what that should do is fill you with faith and go, oh my goodness, how merciful is God? We only have a minute. His mercy should provoke us to lean in, not make me draw back in unbelief. It should fill me with courage that God is who he says he is. He is like this because he's merciful and he longs to give wicked humanity time to receive his grace, to repent, to hear the truth. Look at Ezekiel 33. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, 
I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. But I long that the wicked would turn from his way and live. Romans 2, Paul says it this way. Do you presume on the riches of the kindness and forbearance and patience of God? Meaning this. This is, you can write down a couple other passages. Uh, I don't have the verses on the top of my head, sorry. Just read the whole chapter. In Matthew 5 and in Luke chapter 6, this is the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus says, the Father causes rain to fall on the just and the unjust. And he then says, be like your Father, be merciful, just like he's merciful. What Paul means by presuming on the kindness of God is this I am a sinner. I sin. I know in that moment, deep down in my heart, and everybody does, we've been given a conscience. I know that I have violated the transcendent, glorious law of the holy God. And I know that I deserve judgment and his wrath. And I'm not judged in the moment. The rain keeps falling. The food keeps growing. The sun rises tomorrow. Presuming on the kindness of the Lord takes those gifts and says, he doesn't care. The eyes of the Lord don't see. Paul goes, do not be presumptuous. What is, why? Because the kindness of God isn't meant to validate your sin What is it meant for? It is meant to give you time to repent. To give you time to repent. And so Peter's picking up on this idea and he's saying, hey, when, when the scoffers come and say, where is the promise of his coming? Remember that God's time is not like ours. He isn't slow like you would count slowness. He is not lax like you would count to be lax. He isn't apathetic or uncaring about his creation. He's slow to anger, abounding in love, longing that any and all would come and repent for their sins and receive forgiveness in him. Remember that, right? Remember that when the scoffing spirit comes against you. Right When you are tempted to believe that, remember that the delay of God is evidence of his holy character, of who he said that he will be. Amen. We'll, we'll, we'll pick up there next week. We've got a part two. Praise God. Would you stand with me? Hey, and here is the call. If you're in this room this morning and you don't believe in Jesus, if you have not yet put your faith in him, my plead with you, my plea with you this morning is do not presume on the kindness of the Lord. Here is the message of the gospel. We were created by a holy God to live in communion with him, to live in fellowship with him, 
It's why we exist. It's why he created everything so that he could share his glory and display his glory to something made in his image in communion. It's why you exist. And you have sinned against him. You have turned your back on him in your thinking, in your words, in your actions, in the way that you've lived. And you deserve eternal judgment to be separated from him, to be cast away as his enemy. But he has made a way for you to come back into relationship with him. He offers salvation in and through his son, Jesus Christ, who came and lived a perfect life, died a gruesome death, so that his death might be the sacrifice needed for your forgiveness and your redemption. I want to ask you to believe that this morning. Plead with you to believe that this morning. Peter makes it really clear here in the next verse. Every single one of us will Stand in the presence of a holy God whose presence is like fire. And that fire tests the quality of of our lives. And let me just tell you this. You cannot manipulate his evaluation. You can't persuade him to think differently. You can't show up and go, but, 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 but. There's only one hope. It is to call upon the name of the Lord Jesus and be saved. And you can do that this morning. If you're in the room this morning and you don't put your faith in Jesus, I'm actually going to pray that God would stir in your heart and bring a conviction of sin. Open your eyes to see him. If you want to surrender your life to him this morning. We have people that would love to talk with you and pray with you and walk with you in the midst of that. And for the rest of us in this room, if you are here and you believe in that, we're going to celebrate communion this morning. We're going to remember that our only hope is Jesus Christ. We're all going to stand before him and all we have to plead in that day is Christ and Christ crucified. That his righteousness is sufficient for our unrighteousness. That his life is powerful enough to uh, fill us where we deserve death. And we're going to throw ourselves at the foot of the cross yet again by coming and taking of this sign, the broken body and the shed blood of Christ. The way we take communion here at Redeemer is you take a piece of the bread off, dip it into the cup. We have wine in the stoneware. We have juice in the glassware. We'll have servers up in the front, the middle, both sides of the balcony and a gluten-free, allergy-free station to my right over here. We're going to come and celebrate that. We're going to sing together. We're going to remember together. We're going to delight in the reality of our life in Christ as his gift. So I'm going to pray for us and then we'll come and receive when we're ready. Father, this morning I ask as we come to the table of fellowship with the Lord, I ask that you would stir up our hearts yet again. God, would you cause us 
by the power of your Holy Spirit to be surrendered to you in every part of our lives. God, I ask that in this place, even for those that call upon your name, God, would you drive out from our midst a scoffing spirit that looks at the apparent slowness of your fulfillment of your purposes. God, and that we would delight once again that you are a God who is gracious and abounding in mercy, slow to anger, full of love. God, would we receive that as we as we take of the bread and drink of the cup, God, would we delight once again in the glorious manifestation of your love toward us. God, and for those who are in this room this morning who are not followers of you, who have not put their faith in you, Holy Spirit, I ask for the gift of new birth this morning. Would you, would you move among this congregation? God, would you move among this room? Would you breathe new life? God, would you save us? God, would you convict of sin? Would you convict of unrighteousness? Would you convict of the coming judgment? That there is a day when we will stand in your presence. God, in you, your evaluation is all that matters. God, I ask for new birth right now. Spirit blow in this room like the wind that we don't know where it comes from or where it's going. God, would you do what you long to do? Would you bring forth salvation? God, would you let all who call upon the name of the Lord be saved? God, this morning, would you bring forth new life? New life according to your grace. God, come and nourish us, feed us, sustain us, Empower us. God, I just ask that you would give us the gift of the revelation of your nearness, of your presence. I actually ask that the fear of the Lord would be our portion. Holy God, come and open our eyes, open our hearts move among us. Come nourish us.